I'm Lucy Barkas, and this is the Leader X podcast, focusing on the future of work. In my book, Leader X, I share my five minds methodology, a way to lead organization and teams. My legacy is all about what you want to create, the impact you want to have on your people, your customers, and, and ultimately the world around you. It's all about your purpose. It's the opportunity to dream, to vision, to strategize. But how do you do this when everything is so unpredictable and fast changing? In this series, I welcome futurists, people who hang out in possibilities of the future of work. I ask them about what's coming up. The goal is to inspire you, to challenge you, and to help you think bigger about your impact, your legacy. Leaders always start with the end in mind and then strategize, innovate, and find ways to make it a reality. The Five Minds Method will help you achieve it. So head to the website to sign up to the 3WH newsletter, uh, where those who are serious about leadership now and in the future will get the tools, tips, and methods to be the leader they wish they'd always had. And coming up, what the Inverness experiment taught BT about remote working way back in 1992 that is playing out in our existence right now. I have got such a good guest for you today. I searched the term uh, futurist on LinkedIn and up popped Nicola Millard. We exchanged some e emails and then jumped on a quick call and ended up talking for an hour. So I couldn't wait to speak to her again for this podcast and actually record what we were talking about. Now, once described as human caffeine on Twitter, Dr. Nicola Millard injects a positive, people-centered shot of espresso to innovation and future strategy. Half social scientist, half technologist, all academic, she uses techniques from disciplines such as design thinking, psychology, anthropology, computing and business consulting to generate data provocations and stories which engage and create conversations from the boardroom to the front line. No frothy coffee, just solid research. They're her words. In her long and varied career with BT, she has evolved, uh, she's been involved in a number of BT firsts, including the first application of artificial intelligence into BT's call centres. She did uh, BT's initial experiments with homeworking way back in 1992 and helping to develop BT's Net Easy Score, a new way of measuring customer experience. She got her PhD in 2005 and has authored over 50 publications. And what's more, she's an award-winning presenter with two TED Talks and hundreds of conference panel chair and keynote sessions under her belt. She occasionally pops up on TV and radio too, including appearances on Woman's Hour, Tech End, and The Genius of Invention, and back in time for the weekend. So you know it's going to be a good conversation. So welcome, Nicola, or should I say Dr. Nicola? How do people address you? Oh, Nicola's fine, Dr. Nicola. I think when I first got my PhD, I insisted everyone called me doctor, but uh, I've had it for a few, few, a number of years now, so no, Nicola's fine. <laughs> oh, that's all right then. I, I like the informal. Um, now, I think I found you on LinkedIn by searching the, the phrase futurist, so can you tell me a little bit about, well, what is a futurist and, and what is the work that you actually do? 
So yes, I, I guess uh, I think I was formerly known as a futurologist, which was a was a BT term, and obviously that means I had anology, um, which is a very old BT advert. But um, but anyway, um, no, I, I that was my old job title, and uh, um, I'm I'm now a principal innovation partner, which is a much more boring job title. But uh, I think I always had a love hate relationship with the with the term futurologist because I think most people assumed I had some kind of crystal ball or I did something with tea leaves. And um, yeah, that's not what I, I, I actually did. Um, <laughs> it, uh, it was, um, I'm, I'm an academic, so uh, I, I do research. So a lot of the stuff that I do is really around trying to understand the trends and behaviors that are, are going on and, and what that might actually mean for business. So um, yeah, I, I do have a crystal ball, by the way, someone very kindly gave me one, but um it sadly doesn't work. Uh, so I think <laughs> I need to return it. I know. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, my job, my job now, as I said, uh, it, it's the same job. It's just a slightly different job title. So, uh, so my role is very much to do research. Um, so I'm part of BT's innovation team. Uh, we're actually a huge investor in innovation and research in BT. We just don't tell anybody about it. So um, partially my role is to raise people's awareness that we're the third biggest investor in the UK in research wow. and innovation. And um, I'm based at Adastral Park, which is uh, just outside Ipswich. So I am currently not at Adastral Park. I'm seven miles away in central Ipswich. Um, and um, yeah, my role is to try and harness a lot of the the wonderful innovation ecosystem that we have which comprises you know firstly our own amazing people but uh, but also we have incredible partnerships with the likes of MIT over in Boston we've got Cambridge just down the road uh, Bristol University uh, and many 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 others and so I always say I stand on the shoulders of giants but I'm also a slightly weird part of the innovation team in that uh, as you would expect with bt um the majority of people are technologists um i'm not uh, i'm a psychologist by background so my role is to really uh try and understand the most disruptive part of innovation which is of course um not the technology uh, it's us because unless we embrace it and use it and you know use it to change the way that we work rest and play it's uh, actually pretty useless so um that's why that's the logic behind having a, a social scientist in the team is to try and understand why people adopt and reject technologies what kind of behaviors those technologies are provoking and um yeah what might, what might well be around the corner in terms of strategy well, it's, it is interesting in the sense that um, now everybody seems to think that they're an expert in technology. You know, we've all been working in some form or another remotely or using tech to survive the last six, seven months. Um, and whether they're doing it well or not, um, that's another matter. But you and I have been experimenting with technology and remote working, agile working for decades, and I think you said it was 1992 that you started, and for me it was 2004. Um, but you also said in our previous chat that BT actually fell out of favour with this whole homeworking um, test or trial. And is that to do with the technology or was that the psychology behind it? We didn't exactly fall out with it. So I, as a piece of history, I think BT was a very early adopter of homeworking. In fact, uh, we uh, one of my first jobs in BT, and this will uh, give you a clue as to how long I've been with BT, but uh, uh, was in 1992 was our first homeworking trial. And that was uh, in Inverness. Uh, it was fondly known as the Inverness experiment for kind of obvious reasons. But, um, but uh, what we did then was 
pretty pioneering. So we got 11 volunteers and they were volunteers. We didn't force them to work from home. Uh, they actually said they wanted to. Um, so uh, and we got them to work from home for a whole year. Um, now, I was a very small part of that project uh, around the psychological monitoring and um because uh, we didn't know if these guys were going to go nuts. I mean, nobody yeah. had done a year at home before. Um, so uh, yeah, they didn't, by the way. In fact, they, they, uh, what we're seeing, what we saw with them, we're seeing now. I, I dug out some of the paperwork a couple of years back, and uh, this one lady said, uh, I learned to cook and found out who my neighbours were. And I think that's pretty much what we're finding now. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, I think the psychology piece hasn't changed. The reason it didn't work, really that well in 92 was the technology because simply we didn't have broadband we didn't have 4g or 5g um we didn't have the connectivity so in order to get those guys to work effectively from home we literally had to dig their front gardens up um so uh, there was a bulldozer involved um uh, and that cost a lot of money at the time and to be honest it was the economics that kind of uh, uh kind of made us not necessarily do it as early as 1992 I mean, we were also, we slightly over-engineered the solution. We gave them video conferencing for a start. Wow, I didn't even know it existed then. It did, it very much did. The units were about the size of a small fridge, but um, <laughs> uh, and the quality was terrible, it has to be said. So no one really used the video uh, links. We thought they might, but uh, but they didn't really. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot of lessons that we can learn. And actually, BT... By the year 2000, BT had kind of wholeheartedly gone into home working and there was a fair percentage of our workers working permanently from home. But I think we learned, and again, this is echoed by what we're experiencing now, that permanent home working can be incredibly hard. Um, so I always used to quip that some of our employees never got out of their pajamas. That's probably unfair, but uh, they certainly didn't get out of their houses very often and they didn't see uh, other, other people that they were working uh, with very often either. So um, I think what quite rightly BT started to think was, well, do we need to pull back um, and maybe not have vast numbers of home workers, but actually encourage people to work anywhere effectively. So much more mobile working um, so that they get the socialization, they get out of the house. And then much more recently, we've been, we've been looking at our office estates. And uh, I always joked that a lot of BT offices were not made for people. They were made to house very large bits of kit. Uh, and therefore, it's quite common in BT to have a completely windowless office because frankly, Ooh. technology doesn't need daylight um, so quite rightly, we, we also were looking at um, updating our, uh, our real estate, um, which we are still doing. Um, so there was much more investment in the actual place uh, where you worked uh, rather than necessarily, um, you know, a, a massive investment on work from home. So we haven't fallen out of love with it. Uh, I think we just acknowledged that um, it works for a lot of people. We found that, but it actually can be quite hard to do on, on a long term basis. Yeah, and to be fair, I think it was, I'd said 2004 for me, I'm trying to like work my way back. And I think for me, I'd first become a manager in the title and I was given this uh, this laptop and uh, a BlackBerry and I'm, I'm sure it was a Cisco card or something where it had like a four digit code and I'd have to sit there and wait for it to connect. Um, and although it was kind of like a little bit Mickey Mouse and slow, it worked and if I had a really big project to do or I needed to get my head down, that option to be able to work from home was completely liberating. And 
I never thought that I'd be doing it 100% all my time or, you know, forever. Um, but those really focused, you know, pieces of work, I absolutely loved. And so for me, I've been doing it since 2004 in one capacity. But I've got to say, um, we, we're now coming into autumn. The, the weather's gone not so nice. The children are back at school. And I'm finding myself now um, stuck in the house. And I don't, I don't think I left the house yesterday. And the day before, I forced myself to go and work out of a coffee shop just to actually move and, and see daylight. And I think that might be a little bit of a, a falling out of love with the whole remote working piece over the winter time. It's going to have a very different feel. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. When the weather gets bad and you can't sit in the garden and uh, yeah, there's no sunlight to, to kind of buoy you along. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I mean, I'd studied homeworkers for a very long time. Um, I, actually, I also remember one of the very early things we did in the 90s was even things like dial up email, which I found very exciting at plugging an email phone in and getting my email in a hotel room once. That was, wow. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'd never really gone into... I never really had fallen in love with homeworking, despite really I could I could have done it. I studied it, um, but uh, this has been the first time I've had to do it for any length of time. And I think when we look at the data that's coming out um, uh, from this massive global remote working experiment, which is to be honest, is a, it is a very unique time. We've we've never been able to at scale uh, study um, you know people working remotely before, and so there's some really intriguing data. Um, coming out of this experiment. Um, and I think uh, a lot of what we're seeing coming out from employees is saying they are generally about 70% of them are saying they feel more productive, they like working from home, but they'd actually quite like choices. And to your point, um, it's quite nice to get out of the house sometimes. So um, I think a lot of people, I think the last survey I saw, which was a very big global one, that about 60% of people were saying they might like to go back to an office, particularly to meet people, to socialize, uh, to collaborate, to connect, to build community. All of those things I think people are missing from an office. Uh, but also to your point, I would normally be, I, I call it a coffice worker. Um, so uh, I, I like the co-working type uh, environment where, you know, the, the local coffee shop where there's a uh, coffee and nice cake. That's pretty much all I really need to work. Um, so I think, you know, it's a weird time in that our choices have been cut down. Um, but I think we're going to come out of this, I suspect, with employers embracing more choices. So, so actually saying, well, you know, maybe you can work from home because we've proved that you can do it and, and it works pretty well and productivity hasn't suffered. But maybe we'll use offices in slightly different ways. But particularly with climate change uh, in the back of our minds, I think the co-working piece is an interesting one around can you start to get out of the house but go to somewhere that's maybe not that far away. So it's, it's you know, hyper-local, it, it's walkable, it's cyclable. Uh, and doesn't require a two-hour commute, but it gets me out of the house and it gives me a bit of variety. Well, interestingly, the um, Hamish, who was on the previous podcast, uh, he's um, he's in film and technology and you know all that creative stuff, uh, and he actually came up with the idea of a co-working space for creatives about six, seven years ago, and it opened the doors finally um, in my town in. August 2019 so they literally had about six months worth of trade and getting it out there when it all stopped but he was actually really excited about the future 
because he said it's not just the, the solopreneurs and the gig economy people. He said he's had inquiries from people working, you know, generally in London, the, the big corporates were saying, can I have a desk, please? Uh, can, I, can I come and just, you know, sit here and just listen to the conversations and the buzz of what's around? Um, and when there was like talk of a, potentially another lockdown, they were saying, no, please don't take this away from me. So that really excites me yeah. um, that these, you know, people are saying, oh, we're not going to need these offices and the world's going to change in real estate. But actually, if we can start rethinking the way that we use our real estate, and yeah. rather than holding one company, let's let's make it a bit more fluid. Again, it comes back to human choice. It absolutely, and choice has a number of benefits. Firstly, choice tends to go with control. When you look at um, stress, for example, classic psychology will tell you when you have high demand and low control, you'll get stressed. And you know, being able to choose where, when, and how you work is one element of control that we can exert. Uh, we might not be able to control our workload, but we can at least control some of those preferences. And also we're all different as well. So there isn't a one size fits all solution for everyone at work. And, and some people, as I said about the, the, the data saying about 70% of people really like homeworking, that means 30% of people are struggling. Um, so we, we can't just say, hey, everyone can work from home because Certainly, I've, I've always said that we're, we're, we may all be on the same ocean here, but we're not all in the same boat. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, particularly that the, the stats seem to be coming out that if you are in a small house, um, a shared house, you have, you have a whole family with you, um, you're an extrovert. Um, yeah, all of those things are probably um, within that 30% of people who are really struggling. So we can't just say, hey, we won't have offices anymore because frankly, offices help certain people to work. And in that 70% of people where it's working, there's still a kind of uh, a need to socialize because frankly, we are social creatures. So, and we kind of seen this before the pandemic, a lot of the stuff that we, we're talking about around the, the, the changing nature of the office, the co-working hub, and indeed homeworking, um, all of those were on the table. Um, prior to the pandemic hitting. But like most things with this pandemic, it, it's kind of accelerated a lot of the digital strategies by, well, anywhere between three and seven years, according to some of our customers. Um, and it's opened people's minds as to you know, some of the possibilities that they may have ruled out prior to the pandemic. Oh, my people could never work from home. Well, we've been forced to do it. And now, you know, we're adapting to it and actually we've adapted really well um, and productivity hasn't generally fallen off a cliff. So I think people are seeing that it, it works. Um, therefore they're actually going, Oh, oh well, hmm, yeah, maybe I do need to reconsider my strategies. Yeah. And uh, I did um, a LinkedIn poll a few months ago and I was really interested in terms of people's future requirements when looking for a job. So thinking about job searches and, um, you know, because things are a bit tricky at the moment, there's not that many jobs on offer in certain sectors, but 75% of people said that they wanted some kind of hybrid, um, you know, and comes back to that choice. Um, only 5% said that they wanted purely on-site working and the others said only remote working. And, uh, and for me, that's, you know, looking in the future, you're going to have to start specifying, you know, what flexibility, what options, and not as a, an employer benefit, um, as a, some HR function, as just a, a cultural, this is just how we do things around here. 
Yeah, I think we're hung up with location. To be honest, um, with a lot of the, the the research I've been doing, it's just work. It actually doesn't matter uh, whether you're at home, you're in the office, you're anywhere in between. It's work. Um, so, and and you need the tools to enable you to do that. And I've always said, I mean, it's a having a pandemic is bad, but we're almost a perfect time to have a pandemic because the technologies have matured a lot since 1992. The connectivity is generally better. Uh, we've got cloud technologies, which has enabled people to, you know, do things within a, a space of a week or two weeks in terms of deploying mass homeworking solutions. We typically have technologies that are a lot more mobile. Uh, so all sorts of things within the technology space has enabled us to do that. Not least, you know, things like video conferencing, the evidence is from our network data at the moment that we've seen um, you know, video data off on our network grow five times. Um, and wow. that, that was during the first part of the pandemic. So, you know, tools like that have enabled us to, to connect and to collaborate and do a lot of the things that typically we might have to commute somewhere to do. Um, and we've discovered, actually, we don't necessarily need to do the commuting anymore. But I've always said face-to-face -face is difficult to completely wipe out. Um, yeah because there are some very unique things in face-to-face. -face. So I think uh, I, I was saying before the pandemic, we may start to look at face-to-face -face maybe as a luxury, but certainly as, as something that is really important and should really be reserved for those, those kind of meetings and events where it is really important to build trust, to, uh, to, to socialize, um, to get people interacting with each other. And that's probably largely the functions that are going to go in, in offices, certainly uh, around that sort of connection, collaboration and community piece. Isn't this great? You can catch up on uh, other brilliant guest topics by subscribing to the podcast and leave us a review while you're at it. And catch up with uh, previous guest Kelly Swingler as we talk about tribes and coming up the future of recruitment with Ira Wolf. Head over to www.3wh.uk.com to find out more about Becoming Leader X. This morning I had a, a call with somebody about leading some um, roundtable discussions throughout 2020. And it was so interesting because by default, the assumption was that it would be delivered virtually. Um, and I did ask the question and, you know, it was, of course, it's going to be uh, virtual. Whereas if I'd have say, said that 12 months ago, it would have been a completely different response. So, you know, when people think about... Um, people adopting change, actually, we are, as humans, we, we're really adaptive and we can make changes and get into new habits very, very quickly. Um, in this case, it was a pandemic that forced it. But for me, you know, when I was working in the corporates, actually, it was just a leadership mentality. It was their strategy. They decided this is the direction. And actually, we all believed in it and we all went with it. And so, you know, for me, there's, there's definitely a leadership development area in terms of how can you be visionary? How can you be innovative? How can you bring, bring people along that journey? Yeah. And, and I know that that's part of almost what you do in terms of your role, being the psychologist within the, the technical side. So can you speak to that for a moment? Sure. I mean, I think leadership plays a, a huge role. I mean, firstly, around 
there's a lot of talk about trust, for example, particularly in the light of some employers putting this really heavy surveillance software on people's laptops, which basically says, I don't trust you. I don't yeah. trust you to work. And I always say, you know, sitting in front of my laptop does not mean I'm particularly working. It's it's the it's the digital equivalent of I can see you in the office, really, isn't it? And of course, you know, with presenteeism, being in the office doesn't necessarily mean you're working. I, I know people who I see out and about in an office, you know, the office dwellers. And could I tell you what they do? Not really. They probably couldn't tell me what they do either. But um, so just sort of translating well, I can't see them in the office, therefore I need to see them in the digital world. And it, it doesn't need to be as uh, as drastic as having surveillance software. Sometimes managers are, are monitoring people's presence information on instant messenger, for example. Yeah. Uh, that that kind of thing, I think, you know, basically says I don't trust my workers. And that's a bad position to be in. And we've learned, you know, from from previous studies that that remote organizations typically do trust by def- default. The second thing is you're right. It's also around digital by default. So um, it used to be permission to work from home. It's now permission to work from an office um, because obviously we need to manage office numbers down. So um, we can't have everybody in uh, every day, um, certainly whilst this virus is about. So inevitably, you know, capacity typically is running around 40 to 50 percent if we're allowed to go into the office uh, at the moment. So Again, not everyone's going to be in. Therefore, when we look at things like collaboration, uh, which is obviously been uh, a lot of the research I've been doing, because frankly, we have a lot of collaboration platforms in BT. So it's really trying to understand, you know, um, by default goes right down to things like meetings. And again, leaders need to understand, firstly, the best common ground for that meeting. Now, there could be, it could be physical again, where it's very valuable, but largely it's probably going to be a digital common ground. And even if people are now in an office, the chances are that half the people that you're meeting with are not in an office. So they're remote. So therefore the common ground is digital. Um, So even if you are sitting physically in a meeting room, the chances are that you'll all be sitting with individual headsets. And I've been running a lot of um, (laughs) courses like that, where I've got two people sat next to each other, but the other one's in a completely different city. And it yes. feels strange at first, but actually, yeah, we've, we've just adopted it and we've got on with it. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, BT was always an interesting organization to study because we had to do a, a lot of people were remote. So the, initially the audio conferencing platform had become the default. So it, it wasn't unusual to sit in somewhere like a Dastral Park and be surrounded by people, some of whom were on the same call, but all of whom were sitting with a headset on on an audio conference because a lot of people we're not actually physically co-located and that's been translated now into a lot more video behavior because I've got to say I me personally I much prefer um the visible because the number of times people would be tripping up I mean people think about um how excruciating zoom calls can be sometimes those days of audio conference calls they were painful lots of silences people are muting and Oh, it was difficult. You can't read people. You don't know who's present and what's going on. That That's absolutely true, but don't write off audio. In fact, um, other bits of uh, interesting stuff around our network data, audio calls also grew. So not only video calls grew, audio calls grew, and actually email grew as well. So oh, wow. what we're seeing during this pandemic is, is a real wave of communication. Um, so people are talking to each other more. 
rather than less. Um, the evidence is that they're talking particularly to their immediate colleagues a lot more. Um, maybe some of the, the sort of more peripheral colleagues are, are suffering a little bit more in that we're not necessarily having... I, I hate that word, that word serendipity because I think this is broader than bumping into someone in an office, but it's, it's around connecting with people who are interesting people to connect with, but maybe not you know, absolutely central to the task or purpose that you're working on at the moment. I think virtual coffees have started to, to, to you know, start to, to, I guess, create some of those weaker connections. If you're looking at net, human network theory, we talk about uh, strong ties and weak ties. So the strong ties have very much been in, uh, in kind of reinforced, I guess, by the pandemic in terms of you know, more email, more meetings. Or We're, we're having, I think, 13% more meetings, but they're a lot shorter. Yeah. Um, and obviously with video, there, are, there is some quite interesting psychology around video because if you are being observed, you've got a little camera looking at you all the time. There is a pressure to conform and perform. Um, yeah. And that is why you do tend to get things like Zoom fatigue. Uh, the other obviously allied thing is that because we're having more meetings and shorter meetings, we're also chunking our diaries uh, more into I've got meeting after meeting. So the desk by meeting day problem. Oh dear. Yeah. Now that's not a problem with video. That's a problem with meetings. Yeah. Um, and I think, again, if we look at the lessons from very remote organizations uh, that, that were operating pretty much remotely prior to the pandemic is they tend to do a lot more on asynchronous tools so that they'll have chats, they'll have conversations, they'll share documents. And at the point at which it's good to have a discussion, that's the point at which they then jump into a meeting. So I think that's absolutely spot on because I think what a lot of companies had done and are still doing is they're just translating exactly how they worked in person and trying to recreate that in the home environment. And actually, we have to rethink everything. And like you say, the, the collaborative documents and um, the kinds of conversations that we're having on meetings, that needs to change. Yeah, completely. I, I keep saying we, we have an opportunity to, to completely reinvent work here. So we, we've done quite a number of surveys with business leaders, for example, particularly on things like digital workplace initiatives, of which there were many prior to the pandemic. But and what is a digital workplace is a very big question. Um, and then that's a big question to answer. But I think one of the things that I wanted to do was to step back and say, well, why are you doing it? Um, and actually, the answer came through quite strongly in the data. It wasn't rocket science, but people were saying, I want to improve productivity. Now, that is in itself is interesting. So obviously, we want to reinvent work to make people more rather than less productive. But I think one of the difficulties we have in reinventing the future world of work is to actually measure productivity. Um, and there are lots of kind of ripple back effects on the inability to do this very well. So firstly, productivity measures that we typically use were derived in the industrial age. So they were built for factories and they were built really around, you know, let's put some input in, let's manufacture some widgets and we get output. Now, I haven't manufactured that many widgets for, well, ever, to be honest. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I'm a knowledge worker and actually the bulk of the workers that have made that very easy transition from office working to home working, actually the bulk of them are knowledge workers. But yeah. what do knowledge workers produce? Well, knowledge for sure. Yeah. Hence a lot of conversations. Um, Michael Schrager, MIT has been talking about this concept of, can we get this? Can we get some idea of return on idea? Because uh, if I produce ideas, how do we actually classify how valuable those ideas are, how they've per permeated through an organization and how we've actioned them? 
I don't know how you measure that, but that's an intriguing concept. The trouble is we tend to go, as with most measures, we tend to measure the things that are easy to measure. So we end up with productivity proxies, which tend to be things like the number of hours you work. Um, now, the evidence is at the moment, we've always had quoted at us, and indeed our, our experience in BT was that homeworkers typically are 20% more productive, however you want to define that. But actually, you then look at the stats, and what we're finding is on average, the working day has been extended by about 48 minutes. Um, so, and that's where productivity, well, however we want to define it, we're using a proxy here, um, that that's basically why we work 20% longer. The trouble is we then look at, does that improve output? Um, actually, it doesn't, because the longer we work, the more liable we are to burnout, and we're going to get tired, we're going to make mistakes. So actually working longer hours is probably detrimental. And there were lots of experiments around three-day weeks and four-day weeks and truncated hours that actually demonstrated pretty well that if you work less, you probably are going to produce a lot more. So I think we all know that in, intrinsically anyway, you know, um, it, it, we, we know that when we're happier, we're, we're more energized, we're rested, we've eaten well, um, we just work better and you know the whole thing about also you know I even before this when I was like working with leadership teams I'd say most of the the value that comes from a lot of your workers is their creativity it's their innovation but if you were to say to somebody I need six ideas from you by the end of the day their brain just freezes it's yeah. impossible we we need that safety and that trust and actually time to be able to just sit and think. And how are you going to measure that? Yeah, I mean, I think sitting, staring out of the window does look as if you're, you're not doing anything. But I think we, we tend to mistake activity for productivity. And I think that's very, there are two things that demonstrate this in this, this current world that we're in. Firstly, the death by meeting day. People want to look as if they're busy. And if they equate being busy with having a meeting, that's probably what they're going to be doing. So, so that's one thing. Um, but, you know, that, that propensity to work longer uh, is why actually permanent homeworking is uh, actually quite hard to do. Now, in the first couple of weeks of the pandemic, I actually reached out to some of our veteran homeworkers to kind of get, give some advice as to you know, how on earth do I work effectively from home? Because I, I don't know how to do it. I, I've never done it really long term before. But there was a lot of talk around, well, how do you switch off? Um, and I think that, that that can be a very big problem. Uh, I think uh, it was Kevin Kelly from Wired that once said the, the problem of the future is not connection, it's disconnection. Um, and finding the off switch when you are literally living at work um, is a, a discipline. It's not necessarily easy. So I think a lot of the stuff I got, and it was brilliant stuff. And by the way, we did publish it as a white paper because it was so brilliant. But a lot of the stuff that we, we got um, out of our own homeworkers was around how they redefine those boundaries. So, and there were some very interesting strategies, everything from uh, this one person who was, would wear their security pass, their office security pass actually at home when they were working and they would take it off and that, that would demonstrate they finished working. There were people that commuted around their house. Um, you know, um, they'd move either, you know, one guy was going out of his front door around the house and going and working in his garden wow. bed and then would come back and say, hi, honey, I'm home at the end of the day. So there were strategies around saying, I am working, I am not working um, and not being guilty as well. I think longer term homeworkers uh, learn the value of pacing yourself. 
uh, and not feeling as if you need to be always on and and that switch off time that you know going to walk the dog in the middle of the day is not a crime actually it's probably going to do you much more good than than harm um so but building that into your day even disciplines like taking a lunch break um yeah. all of those things you need to actually consciously and stretch and move your body um because that was one of the things that i noticed uh, especially in the early days was you know I, my my shoulders were more tense and um i just yeah started getting uh, creaking in my bones and it literally was because I was just sat all day and yeah, not moving. So I purposely move around. And for me, I've got my, my zone where I'm sat now. This is my space. When I'm sat here, I'm working. I've told the children that also. So, you know, because there has to be boundaries for the other people in the house. But once you've got those boundaries, the only person that can really um, impact them is you yeah. and about whether you are allowing people to come in to your and book that meeting a bit, little bit later, or take that call uh, eight o'clock at night. It's down to you. It is, and even little things. Um, people were suggesting that rather than being ruled by thirty-minute and, and one-hour chunks, which tends to be what you know most of our calendars force us into, um, have twenty-minute meetings so that you've got ten-minute decompression to stretch and go to the toilet and have a good cup of coffee. Vital for me, and similarly for one-hour meetings, forty-five minutes to fifty rather than an hour to, to allow a little bit. I, it's quite funny because obviously, you know, meetings are now frictionless. I don't have to travel anywhere. I don't have to change rooms. Um, I don't have to. Yeah, there's a lot of things around coordination that are a lot easier. Therefore, it is much, much easier to get you know those back to back things. But just thinking about those little things around how do we build in a little bit of decompression into the day can make a huge, a huge impact on our productivity. Yeah, one thing that I had to start doing um, was blocking out time in my diary as things like prep work or complete this or, you know, even just do my accounts. And they were blocked in my diary. Yeah. And then if people want an appointment with me, I would send them a copy of my diary and they'll only see the free spots. Because uh, when people are asking me to do it, I'd be like, oh, well, I can ignore that. And, you know, and, and it would start eating into my time. And so I've had to become very, very disciplined with my time to, to make it work because I know that I would probably end up working 10, 12 hours a day if I didn't have that structure. And I can't serve my clients then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did quite a bit of work um, with both Cambridge University and Lancaster University on on these concepts that we, we tend to call techno stress um, because they're caused by technology. Uh, it's not technology's fault. It's just what technology does to us. And with Cambridge, we, we, uh, we did something called the balanced business communications diet, which literally was a diet. Um, it was a oh, okay. plan to better communications behavior. Um, and the first step really um, is to identify you know, what the stresses are. Um, I know Jason Freed has talked uh, at length around the M&Ms, but I, I uh, being the sort of main culprits, but I, I call it the M&M&Ms, which doesn't work quite so well as M&Ms, but it tends to be mail, email, um, the, the, uh, and it's stream stress rather than email now, I think, because we now have not just email, you've got WhatsApp, we've got Yammer, we've got you know Teams, we've got all sorts yeah. of throwing messages at us. So, you know, turning those things off, sometimes because they are distracting, uh, particularly if we're doing complex tasks might make us more productive. But again, that's a challenge because we're trying to multitask doing a lot of these things. And 
that can be a bit of a time vampire as well. Uh, it might look great to have an empty inbox. You probably haven't done anything else apart from empty your inbox. So mail is one of them. Meetings, I think we've covered that already. Yeah. So, you know, too many meetings, too many pointless meetings. And is this actually something I need to have a meeting about? Or is this something I can do without having a meeting? And then the third one can be managers. Going back to your question earlier about leadership. Um, I think we don't necessarily teach managers very well to manage remotely. Um, and I think um, particularly managers who are used to managing in a normal office environment, um, there is a tendency for some managers to micromanage. Um, and I think micromanagement really does not work with remote working. Going back, back down. I don't think it works anyway. <laughs> I, I completely agree with you, but, um, but it's, it's a pain for the manager. It's also a pain for the person being micromanaged. So I think we're increasingly getting a, a, a lot of data around if you want remote leadership to work, you've got to do a few different things. So firstly, creation of purpose. That's really important. Um, and actually, if you look at collaboration, collaboration does not happen by magic. It happens by purpose. So the definition of purpose is definitely a, a major thing for leadership. Culture. Uh, this is a very interesting one in remote organizations because I think, you know, that sense of culture and community is easy to build in an office space because you've got things around you that echo the brand. You can observe behaviors. That means that in a, in a virtual environment, leaders need to kind of actively demonstrate those behaviors and make those behaviors incredibly tangible and visible. And again, that's not easy. Um, uh, so that, that's the second thing. And then I guess leadership also, and certainly some of the stuff that's being done by both MIT and London Business School bears this out, that leaders need to be able to connect people and then create uh, the platforms for collaboration. And I always call that almost, they're almost perfect party hosts. So if you're at a party and the party host is brilliant, generally what they do is they know a little bit about everybody mm -hmm. and they start to introduce people together that they think might be really interesting. Oh, you, you've got to talk to them because they, they're doing something fascinating that might you know, really inspire you. And I think that connection aspect of leadership is, is one of the really interesting ones to go into. You know, how do you actually create a good uh, future leader? Look at the people that are good at connecting initially. And there aren't very many of them. That's the sad thing. And then actually train leaders and managers around um, you know, that, that, that networking piece. Um, not just in the physical space, but also in the virtual space. How do you make those connections and create those connections and create the purpose for collaboration? That's really great insight. Um, and I already know, like myself, um, sometimes you just come across people who just seem to know everybody. Yeah, you and, do. <laughs> and I'm one of those people that also just retains information about people. So if you can get somebody who's just natural networker who can also retain that and then is also the, 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 the almost the kind and compassionate one who can just bring people together, that's gold dust. That's almost everything opposite to what every other management school has ever been teaching. Completely right. But I think it's been recognized in academia. Again, looking at sort of the stuff that's going on at MIT, um, they've been calling these people charismatic connectors. London Business School uh, called them boundary spanners. I'm not sure that's a great word no. for it but, uh, but you know <laughs> you're, you're right we all do know these people and they're probably our leaders for the future and actually you can start to track it again going back to this massive global experiment um we can start to see 
uh, that you know we can see those connections in digital space and um, you can start to, to trawl data sets to see who's connecting with whom and frequently you will see those those connectors um, actually in action because they're, they're kind of at the hub of a lot of these human networks um, but they're, they're not always um, recognized i guess for their influence and they're not they're not necessarily leaders either um they're often you know people down down a little bit further down in the organization that are just really good at creating that connection well for me as a a bit of an extrovert and somebody who just loves to network that 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 excites me for the future because i'm like yes finally it's coming into to its own so that yeah very exciting so we've come to the, the end of the podcast um and I think we, we've kind of covered all the questions I plan to ask you just in a, a, a meandering kind of way. Um, but what I'd just like to hear from, you know, right now is what is the, what are the things that you're, you're working on now to help your clients or your partners to really future proof? If you could give leaders maybe one or two really key bits of advice, what should they, they be focusing on? I think my, my anxiety at the moment is that, that technology's taken us really fast into a different world, um, but culture tends to lag that. Um, so one of the things I'm anxious about are, is something that I, I've termed horrible hybrids. Um, and we kind of you know, mentioned it already, but um, if you end up with a office dweller's culture versus a remote, dweller, uh, a remote worker's culture, a them and us you will get two tribes that go to war. Frankie goes to Hollywood was very right in that, that sense. And, and culturally, I mean, that, that's all about managers, not necessarily um, making it visible that if you're in the office, you're more likely to get promoted um, or you're more likely to get a, a good appraisal. That again is, is bad leadership. And even down to what we talked about earlier around that digital by default culture in terms of meetings, making those meetings. I think digital can be a great leveler in terms of people's, ability to access meetings if they don't have to travel. Um, certainly I've been doing a lot, a, a lot more work with the guys in Boston over at MIT without having to go to MIT, which has uh, been absolutely brilliant. So I think firstly, my, my, my warning shot would be where those horrible hybrids, but I think, you know, in terms of sort of the more future looking thing, I think what I said earlier about kind of unpinning work from a location I think that that's uh, that's quite important. It's just work, but I do think we also need to be quite creative around the the, the things that I mean. The majority of work habits are anchored back into the industrial age. Uh, the way that we measure work, the way that we manage work, the way all sorts of things. Even the, the Monday to Friday nine to five week was largely dictated from the industrial era, and I think. Obviously, it takes a brave person to start to reinvent work entirely. But I think we've got an opportunity at the moment to start to completely rethink things. And going back to all sorts of things around well-being, how do we, how do we reinvent work to ensure that um, our employees can work well um, from a mental um, health awareness piece? Um, but obviously, just, you know, in things of engagement, job design, all of that lovely stuff. Um, how do we enable people to collaborate wherever they happen to be? And obviously that's where the technology piece comes in. There's a leadership aspect to that as well. Um, and how do we start to redefine what productive work looks like? Um, I think th those three are areas that I'm sort of concentrating in. So productivity, collaboration and well-being are the three key th themes that we're kind of looking at to the future and, and doing research around. That's fantastic. Thank you for that. 
Um, in terms of, you've mentioned some white papers and other stuff that you're doing. If, uh, if the audience wanted to find out a little bit more, where could they get in touch with you? So I'm, I'm all over the place. So uh, I, I'm on Twitter at ActDocNicola. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as well. You, if you search Nicola Millard, you will, you'll probably find me. So uh, I, 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 I don't hide away. Um, please do get in contact. And uh, actually, most of the papers are also on the BT.com site as well. So uh, it's not the easiest site to navigate, but you may well be able to find the, uh, the, the papers are on uh, both the uh, BT Business site and also the BT Global site. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I've, I've really, really appreciated this conversation and my mind's just buzzing. So um, hopefully we can keep connecting and maybe have another chat in the future. Absolutely, Lucy. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for inviting me. So that's another episode done. Don't forget to buy the book leader x subscribe to the podcast and sign up to the newsletter at www.3wh.uk.com that's the number three in the letters w and h and now it's time for you to step up take control and lead with impact tune in next time for another great guest bye Thank you for listening to the Leader X podcast. The Leader X podcast is a gifted gab production for 3WH.